0: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Todd Solzinger. Todd is a real estate investor in the Bay Area who focuses on purchasing mobile home parks. Todd was on the show back in episode 120, and in this episode, Todd will give us an update on the mobile home asset class and tell us what investors should do to pivot their strategies to adjust with the economic impacts due to the COVID-19 virus. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingricom podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Todd, thanks for coming back on the show today. For those of our listeners who don't know you, you've been on the show back on episode number 120, where you talked about how to invest in mobile home parks. And again, for those who haven't heard you yet, go ahead and give us a quick refresher
1: on what you do and tell us who you are. Sure. Yeah. Again, my name is Todd Solzinger and I manage a company called Blue Home Investments. I spent most of my career working in corporate finance for technology companies here in Silicon Valley, as well as out in Sacramento and a few years in the UK and uh, started investing in single family homes back in 2013 and uh, slowly made the transition into building a syndication business focused on mobile home parks.
0: So yeah, give us an update on how things have been since the last time you're on
1: our show. So from the last time I purchased a couple parks in Georgia, that was the first syndication I put together. So went out Spent a lot of time looking at a lot of different parks, a lot of different parts of the country and ended up finding uh, this nice two-park portfolio of 71 spaces over in this town called Milledgeville, Georgia and to raise money for investors. And we went uh, in together and purchased a park there. About a month after that, I bought another park in Tennessee. That's another turnaround park that I'm uh, in the process of finishing up the equity raise for that right now. So the parks in Georgia have been the ones that have been the most active since, uh, since we closed on them. Last year, and it's just been a stream of a lot of the investments that we plan to make from when we started doing some work of improvements like adding new signage, putting in new mailboxes, you know, replacing a lot of the stairs, just doing a lot of improvements to the park. And how's that whole process been for you? It's been good. It's been a learning experience for sure. I, again, I've been involved in real estate for a long time, but I'm relatively new to the mobile home park business. So uh, learning about what it's like to manage those parks, to run them, to, you know, deal with the issues that go along with turning around parks has been an interesting learning experience. And then, of course, we got hit uh, along with everybody else with COVID-19. That affected our parks as well as a lot of other multifamily investments.
0: Can we go into that a little bit more? Like, were you, did, did they stop you from doing more work on them and were people not paying during that time? Really a lot of things did
1: happen. One of the first things that happened after the pandemic hit was the courts in Georgia stopped taking evictions. So it wasn't that they would, you know, they didn't make it illegal to evict people, but if any eviction cases were brought to the court, they wouldn't see them because they were you know, busy doing a lot of other things and also wanted to protect tenants. So we had some tenants that were affected by the pandemic through a job loss And then we had another handful of tenants that saw this as an opportunity to say, hey, you know, if I don't pay my rent, these guys can't evict me. So the courts actually just opened last week in Georgia. So we've started that process. And so it's mixed. We had some tenants who were affected by job losses. We reached out to all of the tenants who weren't paying to see if they were. And if somebody said that they were, Affected by the pandemic, had lost their job. Then we tried to work out an arrangement with them. So you know, we contacted them if they were in communication with us. Then we tried to work out a payment plan. Uh, you know, things like waiving late fees and trying to wait till they got back on their feet to catch up with their rents.
0: that's good. I know a lot of people, or I have heard that there are some people who are trying to take advantage of the situation. And like you said, they just don't want to pay rent. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're still going to get evicted, and that's going to be a big blemish on their record. So I feel they can afford it.
1: In my case, I don't know if they have plans to move elsewhere. You know, the rents, we're renting our mobile homes for between $350 a month to $600. So I mean, if somebody's in the middle of that, if somebody's paying $450 or $500 and wants to go elsewhere, there's some other mobile home parks in town that they might be able to go to, but they're going to go to them with an eviction on their record. So hopefully... They'll, you know, now that we're getting serious and the courts are back open, hopefully know that it's the right time to catch up. And we also had issues where we were, you know, we knew that people were going to be getting additional unemployment or the stimulus checks, but in different states, those took a long time. So if somebody was out of work and living paycheck to paycheck, and even though they may have had the unemployment, the extra $600 coming to them, sometimes that took time. Same thing with the stimulus checks. If you had a bank account on file with the IRS, then it could be direct deposited. But if you had checks mailed to you in the past, those were taking a lot longer time to get to people. So we knew that some people, even though they may have had that money coming, you know, when rent was due in April and May, they may have not have received those government assistance funds. Right.
0: And I remember last time you are on the show, you basically target some mobile home parks that need a lot of improvements. Maybe they're run by you know, mom and pop shops were mismanaged. And, you know, your goal is to go in there to do the renovations, make it better, and then manage it properly. How's the whole process
1: been? And is it as you expected? Yeah, I would say so. You know, I'm working with a professional property manager. So just doing things like not accepting cash for rent anymore. So how do you do that? Okay, it's only going to be check or money order. So some people then have to go down to Walmart and get a money order and make payments to us. And that was a couple month process to convert people over to that process. Also, it, you know, because it's a turnaround park, there was a lot of deferred maintenance in the park. So it's been, we've been seeing favorably to our residents as we've come in that they may have had a, a list of things that hadn't been worked on in a long time. And we have an on-site maintenance guy that as soon as those requests come in, we're out there fixing the parks, uh, fixing the homes up as soon as we can. We had some vacant lots in the park when we bought it. And since that time, we've actually brought in three refurbished used homes. And again, that's a positive for the park and the people that are living there that just slowly every month, there's just something that makes the park look a little bit nicer and shows that we're attentive and trying to make it a nicer place to live.
0: Yeah. So basically kind of going as planned, you're able to fill in the vacant lots and you're able to raise rents where appropriate. And the people who are potentially bad tenants are now kind of slowly drifting off as you improve the park as a whole.
1: Exactly right, right. There's some people that, and then that happened to our occupancy took a dip soon after we bought it because there were tenants that, again, paid cash and because the seller wasn't always reporting his income. If somebody told him, hey, you know, I can't pay the rent or I'm 25, 50 bucks short, he'd let it slide because, again, he wasn't reporting it all anyway. So when we came in and said, no, like your rent's due, and if you don't pay, you're going to pay a late fee. And then if you don't still don't pay that, then we're going to evict you. So that caused some tenants to, because they just weren't used to following the rules.
0: Right. And how has the mobile home park asset class been performing as a whole? Like, I'm sure you're part of these small, you know, groups, maybe on Facebook or whatever, where you only
1: focus on mobile home parks. What are your like colleagues saying? It's really been a mix. There are some parks that really, depending on market and how well the park is run, you know, in my case, because we bought the park late last year, we inherited a lot of the tenants that we didn't screen ourselves. So we had, you know, I would say probably a little bit more uh, higher percentage than a lot of other operators that I talked to in terms of delinquencies and non-payment. There's some other parks that I know of that are in, you know, better markets where the operators have been there a long time and had a more stable tenant base and they had better luck with collections. So yeah, it really does depend kind of on by park and by market and how long you've run it and the kind of what your tenant profile is like.
0: So you haven't seen any like major trends. Like, for example, I think like single family homes here at least locally has been OK, like stable multifamily properties, also very stable. But it seems like, you know, the smaller commercial buildings where they have like restaurants and stuff, obviously they got hit really hard. Saying that mobile home parks have been, again, just kind of stable, nothing really a big deal.
1: I guess on both ends, I was actually listening to an interview the other day of a big Class A, B apartment operator in Dallas, and he was saying their collections have been really strong because they, at that level, all those people were just working from home and had decent jobs and were as affected as people at the lower end of the Employment spectrum in terms of what kind of money people make, so we have been affected, and then again, I think it's kind of a combination of people you know struggling kind of knowing that they had a little bit of an out, whether it was because the courts were closed or because everybody was in a situation of having their income affected that some people you know didn't make it their highest priority to make their rent payment.
0: Have you seen like the differences in the markets like what markets do you think have been performing better and which markets are hurting more
1: due to this economic crisis? You know, I haven't seen consistency um, even within a kind of a consistent pattern market wise, even within the, my property managers manage about 85 parks or so across the country. And it's really hit and miss sometimes in a similar market. They'll have uh, variations in terms of collections. And a lot of it does matter on in terms of how did they screen the tenants and bring those tenants in versus a situation where they were inherited tenants that may not have been as strong as they should have been?
0: Yeah, I guess the lesson learned here is that in the most case, or for the most part, management is probably the key factor in determining whether your mobile home park would be successful or not.
1: Absolutely. Whether it's tenant screening, managing the on-site manager and maintenance crew and, you know, making sure that the rehabs are done as quickly and efficiently as possible, uh, you know, coordinating the, you know, bringing in homes to fill the vacant lots. Yeah, that management piece is really the key.
0: Right. And you mentioned that you were actually trying to purchase another property. I was wondering if you could talk about how that whole experience was trying to raise funds for a project in the middle of this whole COVID-19 crisis.
1: It was challenging. I, after I closed on the parks in Georgia. I purchased a park in Tennessee. I got it for a great deal. I was assigned to me and I had to close on it quickly. So I thought I'm just going to buy the park myself and then uh, go out and raise money afterwards to fill the vacant lots and rehab the existing trailers. And I didn't want to do it in about in October. I didn't want to do things during the holidays. So I thought I'd wait until after the holidays and then 2020 started, got the business plan sorted out, got all my legal documents ready. And then I did my first webinar to pitch the deal to my investor group on March 12th. So, like, right as we were going into the belly of the beast. So, that was challenging just because, you know, the weeks and months after that, people were understandably distracted about for a lot of different reasons, everything going on in the world, watching their stock portfolio dry up. So it's been challenging. So it's been, it's taken longer than I would have liked to kind of get the ball over the finish line. And that's part of what you go through. You never know what's going to happen from an economic cycle, what's going to happen in terms of your investor sentiment, in terms of what they're looking for. So yeah, definitely challenging to try to raise money in a pandemic environment. So what's the conclusion of that story? Are you still in a contract and waiting to raise funds in the future? I actually bought the park myself. So I was essentially selling it into this LLC that's going to take it the rest of the way and fix up the trailers. And then the plan is to sell it in a few years. And that was kind of actually something that came from this just in terms of trying to pivot during a challenging economic environment was we initially had a plan to fill the park up and sell it in five years. And just again, based on everything going on in the economy right now, we came up with a slightly different plan to get the park up to 50% occupancy and then sell it in three years. So that actually was looked at favorably from my investor's standpoint, where they liked the idea of actually getting out sooner rather than waiting that full five years. So that was a good lesson, I think, from a business standpoint to learn and figure out a way to pivot when the environment's changing around you.
0: Yeah, for sure. You have to be flexible during these uncertain times. So to clarify, you bought this property yourself, and then I guess you're trying to raise funds for- to have like a new LLC, buy it from you. Yes, right. Yeah, operated there. That makes sense. But so, how is it now? Like, do you still own it, or did you sell it to the LLC and have investors now with this? That's actually in process
1: now. We're probably ninety five percent of the way there. So hopefully, in the next week or two, we'll we'll all be done there. But kind of interesting to have those kind of conversations with investors to say, hey, you know, we've got this plan of five years that's going to increase the value over this time. How do you feel about that? Or this other plan where we can get out in three years, returns will be a little bit lower, but we can get out of it faster. And again, that was looked at really favorably across my investor group. And uh, yeah, right now we're in the final throes of just bringing in the last funds and you know, really close to getting it over the finish line. And then we'll be able to start working on the homes as fast as we can. The uh, town that I bought the park in, it's called Humboldt, Tennessee. And Tyson Foods is building a huge chicken processing plant there. It's going to bring a ton of good working class jobs into Humboldt. There's not that much affordable housing there. So where the plan is as soon as we can, again, raise all this money and start moving forward, we're we'll going to start fixing up the existing homes and start renting them as soon as we can.
0: That's great. Yeah. It's very smart of you to be flexible and good on your investors to work with you on this.
1: Yeah, I know. They're a great group for sure.
0: The stock market basically took a huge dip in you know mid-March to early April, but it has since recovered quite a bit. How has investor sentiment changed for you Especially when it comes to raising money
1: in the past couple of weeks, it's funny. It's gone both ways. I've got some investors who have said, "Oh, you know, I was going to sell some stock, but because the market crashed, I don't have any money to convert into, you know, convert into cash to invest in your deal." Or other people saying, "Wow, I was really going to planning on investing in a real estate syndication, but because the market's taken a dip, now I'm going to go in and try to, you know, buy on the dip in the stock market." And then you know, can then conversely, because the markets come back, I think people are still you know, a lot of people are still enamored with the stock market as as risky as it is and as much fluctuation as there is, it it definitely does affect people's sentiments. And some people, you know, I think like stock market investing because they while they don't really have any control of it, they feel like they can do, I don't know, enough analysis and understand themselves. They think like, you know, that they have somewhat more control of it. So I've had investors, again, kind of go both ways where they've wanted to, they're scared off by the market in some cases. And then the other people want to double down and get more involved in it.
0: It's crazy because I read this book called The Four. And then in 2018, I was really like enamored with that idea. So I bought all these different stocks and I knew they were going to go up. But for the past few years, they've been pretty flat. Now, of course, COVID happened, they went down. But now, oh my goodness, like Amazon is not $2,700 per share.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. And that's why I think and people like those stories, right? As much as, you know, somebody might say they might be risk averse. I think it's really attractive when some people think, oh my gosh, if I only would have bought then or because that's one thing you can track. It's different with sometimes with like in a syndication, you can't make an investment and know within a month or two, whether it's gone up or down versus in the stock market you always know exactly where you stand. And some people like that. It sounds like it's been a very
0: exciting time for you. What else have you been up to?
1: Well, uh, just about uh, two months ago, I decided also to uh, start working with the property manager consulting company that helped me buy my parks in Georgia and Tennessee. And they're called CCI Investments, and they're based out of the Central Valley in California. So I hired them as consultants to help me through the negotiation and due diligence process and their president came to me a couple months ago as we'd been talking off and on and he said he you know would like my experience to help him with some of their clients so i joined them to be able to help people who actually want to buy a park themselves consult with them and help them through that process so it's great for me because i can help my passive investors who you know want to come in at $50,000 a share to take a piece as, an, as a limited partner but if somebody an individual or another syndication group or a family office wants to come in and buy a park themselves, then I can help people through that process as well.
0: That's great. I mean, you're kind of doing that on this podcast right now. So go ahead and just tell us, like what are you telling people who come to you and ask for some consultation to like asking you how they can buy a mobile home park?
1: Well, that's one thing that's kind of been interesting on the limited partner side. Again, I think where you've got people that are thinking, oh, I've got $50,000. Do I keep it in the bank? Do I put it in the stock market? Do I invest in a real estate syndication? You know, That group of people has a kind of a different take on things than, than people who want to buy a park themselves. So I'm talking to a lot of people. It is really interesting out there. There's still a lot of people that want to buy mobile home parks. They believe in the asset class. They you know, believe in the affordable housing play. And so there's been a lot of activity where people are, again, actively looking at, again, sometimes it's individuals that are looking to buy a park that, again, may have You know, 300 to 500,000 they want to put down. They may have another couple hundred thousand to approve the park. So I've got, you know, people like that that are interested. And then also other syndicators or even small partnerships, people who want to buy parks. And they're looking for, you know, some of the same things that I was looking for when I was trying to put my first deals together. You know, is it a good market? Is there a strong employment base? Is there some upside in the in the park? Whether it was because of operational inefficiencies or rents have been kept to kept too low? Yeah, so those are the kind of things that the people that are calling me are looking for. How are you
0: giving them that analysis for their market research?
1: Well, you know, a lot of it does that does start with parks that we have in our ecosystem that we have for sales. So CCI and they manage you know eighty something parks across the country. So their clients are always buying and selling parks. You've got some people that are. You know that may have had 50 to 100 space parks that they've owned for a few years and they want to trade those out for larger parks. Maybe they started off wanting more value-add parks, but as they've been in the business longer or they're getting older, they wanted to move to more stabilized properties. So some of those initial conversations with people that are interested in buying are related to off-market parks that we have in our ecosystem where some of our existing clients – You know they want to sell the park, but they don't want to put it uh, hire a broker. They don't want their manager to know that it's on the market or any of the tenants. So they'll come to CCI and say, "Hey guys, you know you've got a big network of your existing clients plus other buyers that are calling you periodically. You know if you can get this price for my park, I'd be willing to sell it." So that's some of the first conversations is to talk to clients about some of those parks that we have in our network. And they're all over the place, size-wise, you know, occupancy-wise, geographically, they're quite diverse. So we'll talk to them first about possibly finding a park in our ecosystem that can sell. You know, other examples are sometimes there's recently a park, three park portfolio in Iowa where a partnership group got it under contract. And kind of halfway through the process, realized they really didn't know what they were doing, didn't know all the questions to ask, and they contacted CCI to say, like, we need your guys' help. We need your guys' help to go through due diligence, make a site visit, help us create a turnaround plan, and then manage it afterwards. So those conversations, those kind of calls do come in as well.
0: Nice. Yeah, I mean, it it makes a lot of sense to be able to just sell things in your own inventory because that way you don't have to do all this other market research, like, this is kind of your property. You help these owners make it what it is, and you already have the research
1: with you. And a lot of times these parks are not in large metros. They might be in secondary or tertiary markets that we know enough information about them because either we've been running them, so we know what the occupancy history is and what the tenant demand is. So we've done a lot of that research ahead of time where it's some of the work that I had to do for my first parks that I bought in this town in Georgia that wasn't huge, it's about 55 60,000 people, but through my market research, I discovered everything about the, you know, being the county seat for the town and having three universities in town and having a Lowe's and a Walmart. So, you know, I did that research to figure out that it was a market that was strong enough for me where I thought there'd be a strong continued tenant base. So for the parks that CCI has in their ecosystem, that work's already been done because most of the time, they're managing them, they're running them, and they know what the story is in terms of what the economic drivers are in the town.
0: Makes sense. And can you remind me again, why do people prefer to get into the mobile home park asset class versus something like commercial multifamily or, you know, even just like you know, residentials,
1: one or two single family homes? Well, you know, for a few reasons. One, it's recession resistant. Nothing's recession proof for sure, but at this lower end of the spectrum. Where again, people are paying between you know say three hundred and fifty and six hundred dollars a month rent for a home. Even if somebody's working, if you have two people working a minimum wage job, or you know one person's got a decent uh, blue collar job, they can typically afford rents uh, in this market. And it's also you know in our properties, you might find a you know nicer three bedroom mobile home for six hundred dollars, and a two bedroom apartment in that market might be. 800, 850. So for some people looking at, again, maybe they have a family or they want a little bit more space. They want their own yard. They to, want to be able to pull up to their house directly. That's more desirable than an apartment. And then also the cap rates, the returns on the mobile home parks in general are between a percent and 2% higher than an equivalent apartment in a particular market. So from a return standpoint, that's attractive. And it's, it's a lot of it's because they're often still run by mom and pops that are you know, maybe a little less sophisticated from a sales standpoint as a larger or maybe even an equivalent size apartment owner might be. And so that means there's sometimes you can get better pricing, seller financing, as well as find opportunities to find efficiencies oftentimes around increasing rents closer to market that, again, an equivalent apartment operator may have been able to keep rents closer to market and usually don't find uh, possibilities for faster value adds.
0: So now that we've actually gone through some economic turbulence, have you found your theory to be like
1: accurate? Has it held up? Well, I think this was, you know, really unusual. I think in general, in terms of recession resistance, uh, I believe it's going to hold true. This last few months has been kind of a, a heavier wallop than I would have expected. Yes, I think long term that model will hold. I think as I've gone through this with you know, the parks that I do run, just because it was so widespread, the fact that it happened so quickly. And the combination of that and, you know, the laws changing around evictions in certain jurisdictions was an unusual pattern. I don't think will hold in a typical, you know, kind of slower downturn in the economy.
0: Right. So if we take an example like, let's say, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, you probably wouldn't see these giant bans on evictions. Right. And people probably won't lose their jobs as quickly. And because most of the jobs that got shut down were, you know, like, probably service industry or, you know, maybe like office or blue collar jobs where you have to be close proximity to other people.
1: Yeah. And that's a lot of, I know that I could think of one couple, for example, that was both worked in restaurants and those restaurants closed. So they just like instantly, both people lost their jobs, you know, and I know there's some positions like, you know, some jobs like, you know, barbers or, you know, hairstylists, right. I mean, that's one that you always think over time is like one of the most recession proof jobs there is like no matter what People are going to go get their hair cut, like no matter what happens in the world. And, you know, this happened and that, you know, bulletproof job disappeared. That's right. And here we
0: are three months later with hair that goes all the way to our noses. It makes it very awkward to go on these uh, video calls once in a while because, you know, your hair is too crazy. Exactly.
1: Nice. And how are your clients finding you guys? A lot of times it's just searching on, we have a couple of different websites. So if people are looking for you know, mobile home park consultants, acquiring mobile home parks, CCI's name uh, pops up. From my passive investing standpoint, it's, uh, you know, it's being on podcasts, showing up on webinars, and just you know, building my investor list.
0: And what kind of webinars are you like sending out? Because I think right now, because we don't have these meetup groups, people are craving information. What are some of the topics that people care about the
1: most? Well, yeah, you know, I'm mostly focusing on mobile home parks because that's still, you know, independent of what's happening right now in the economy. It's still a business that not everybody understands. People are curious to learn about. It's gotten, you know, more popular in the last three or four years. But for a lot of people, it, it's still something new and something that may have just heard about a little bit on the fringes that it's, you know, that it has some challenges from an operational and management standpoint, but the returns are good. And, you know, the more people start to, hear a little bit about it, the more they want to hear. And that's kind of what I've been focusing on most of the time when I've been presenting on webinars over the last couple months. It
0: is definitely a pretty unique niche. Like what are some of the things that people don't know about mobile home parks that when you tell it to
1: them, they're like, wow, I didn't know anything about this. Let me see. A lot of it is explaining about whether the park owns the home or the tenants own their own home because like when you drive by a mobile home park you know you just see a bunch of mobile homes on it and you really can't tell how it's being run so that's one big question is because there, you know parks are either a home on a lot is either owned by the resident and they just pay for the lot rent or it's owned by the park itself And they rent it out just like they would a single family home or an apartment. So that's one of the, I think one of the biggest questions that I get in terms of people getting their head around, like, how does that business work? And how does it make money?
0: Yeah. Also, I think, you know, in my mind, because I don't know the industry very well, when I hear mobile home park, I I imagine like some homes on like some dirt road somewhere. And it looks kind of janky, but no, there are some pretty nice mobile home parks. And in fact, in Texas, we went to something called the tiny home village. I don't know if you ever heard of this before, but they're putting these like 400 square foot homes on these lots?
1: Yes, I've seen that. Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, they look amazing. Like I, I would live there. It's like uh, living in a suite in a hotel
1: for your whole life. And it's not that expensive either. Exactly. Yeah. And then they really run the gamut. Like my parks in Georgia, they are, one of them is just on a couple acres in a neighborhood street. So you just see single family home, single family home, our mobile home park, single family home, single family home. And it's just you know kind of winds its way through a neighborhood whereas kind of you know where we live here in the bay area oftentimes they're kind of tucked away somewhere maybe behind a big sound wall and they're not as as visible as they are in a lot of other parts of the country
0: Mm. and as an operator would you prefer that the homes are uh, how do you say it operator owned
1: or tenant owned You know, my business model is really predicated on the park owned home. So the tenants own their own home. uh, You know, that model's great for certain operators and parks. That works fantastic. And the benefits to that are there's lower maintenance and less turnover because people own their own homes. If the park owns the home, there's a spread between what you can charge for the lot rent if somebody owned the home versus if the park owns the home. So, like in the case in Georgia, we bought these refurbished homes that we could rent for $600 a month. If the tenant owned the home and they just rented the lot, we'd charge maybe $175 to $200. So we're getting a $400 spread per month for this home that you know over a year period, that's another $4,800 income. And that far exceeds the cost of maintenance or turnover for that home. So there's more management. You know, again, we have to have an on-site maintenance guy who deals with tenant calls. You know, there's going to be more turnover. You know, people are going to live in the houses less than if they actually owned it. But that differential between what we can charge for the home versus just the dirt makes up for that.
0: What is it cost to buy a
1: refurbished home and then uh, install it? So we bought, there's mobile home flippers out there, just like there's house flippers. There's companies out there that you know, maybe get houses for free to take it off a lot. Maybe they pay a couple thousand dollars for it. They'll move it to their yard, rehab it, and then sell it to operators like me. So these three homes we bought were late 1990s models. So about you know a little over 20 years old, three bedroom, two bath, about a thousand square feet. And we got them for about $20,000 installed. Ah, so cheap. Yeah, I know. And they're pretty nice because they're not, you know, I wouldn't say they're not fancy, but, you know, again, you know, three-bedroom, two-bath, single-wide mobile home that's, you know, new carpet, new appliances, you know, new-ish kitchen. And yeah, they're pretty nice. So, and then when you kind of look at it from a rent ratio standpoint, if we're able to charge $600 a month rent on a $20,000 home, that's a pretty good rent ratio when you compare that to single-family homes or even C-class apartments.
0: Absolutely. And it makes me wonder, like, why can't I just do that and then crane it over my back, you know, crane it over my house, put in my backyard
1: and make it an ADU? I guess if you could fit it, I mean, this is like these are 16 feet wide by 80 feet long. So they're pretty decent size. I don't know how well that might, might fit. But actually, it's a good question. I think in Oakland, they were disallowing any ADUs that you could physically move. So they didn't want people putting in. I'm not sure it was necessarily mobile homes, but they didn't want people putting in RVs or fifth wheel trailers and considering them use.
0: Yeah. I have seen some people do that on Airbnb and they make some good money, but then they get caught by the city and then it doesn't work out. Yeah. But
1: that's a topic for a different time. Yeah. yeah right. That's it. Right. I know some people ask me, oh, you know, dude, why don't you put, you know, would you consider putting tiny homes on your lots? And it's usually not Economically feasible to do that. I know you mentioned the one in Dallas. that seems like it's a project that's working. But you know, to put a you know nine hundred to a thousand square foot three bedroom home for a family for twenty thousand dollars versus a four hundred square foot tiny home that might be seventy or eighty thousand dollars that is really meant for one person, maybe two. Yeah, the numbers usually don't make sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't really know how they're doing it. Maybe it's because it's like a you know, quote-unquote bougie neighborhood to live in, like it's a thing, right? It's not you're not you're not there because you
1: have to go there. You're there because you want that experience. Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm, got it. And it'll be interesting to see how that how that trend continues. I think you know sometimes you'll see these TV shows, maybe it's a reality show or videos of people in these amazing spaces, beautiful homes, and I think I wonder how long that's going to last. Like, are they eventually after about a year or something going like? I need a bigger space, right? I thought I was going to be able to live minimally, but 400 square feet is tight.
0: Especially right now when you're stuck at home. And if you're with your spouse in a 400 square foot home all day, you're going to be like, I need to get out of here. Exactly. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, there's some TV shows on Netflix that, you know, they're making these homes out
1: of like container crates and they look nice. Yeah, I know some of them are really beautiful. But yeah, it's definitely like a, a lifestyle choice that is, you know, it's a small percentage of the population that really is making that choice to live in an environment like that versus, yeah, apartments, single family homes, mobile homes. That's just, uh, just so much more pervasive and such a, a much larger percentage of the population wants to live in something more traditional.
0: Yep. And you mentioned before that you left your old day job and it's been a couple of months now. Have you felt any differences and is there anything you miss about
1: you know, leaving the, the 9 to 5 job? I can't listen to as many podcasts as I used to. Because you're commuting, right? I'm not commuting anymore, so I'm way behind on my podcast listening. Do I miss anything? I guess one thing is it's, you know, when you go off on your own, you're running your own business. You're responsible for everything. It's, it's all on you. You're doing sales, marketing, finance, administration. So, yeah, there are times where I think, oh, man, that was so nice to be able to like be part of a team where there was somebody else or a large group of people who you could lean on or were doing the work. So yeah, so that's one thing from time to time. It was nice being in a corporate environment where it's, you know, a lot more people to get the work done. So that's been, yeah, one big change. You know, overall, I like it. I like running my own business and having control over my day to day. But, you know, working in an office and just getting a paycheck every two weeks, that's a pretty sweet thing as well. You
0: know, it's so surprising, but I left my full-time job a year ago, I can't believe how fast this year has gone by. And like you said, yeah, one of the nice things is that there are some days where I just you know don't do anything and you still get paid, which is great. Whereas now when you run your own business, man, you got to work. If
1: you don't work, then you don't get to eat. So, yeah. Yeah. And I heard somebody the other day saying, oh, yeah, I was able to take a leave of absence from work. And, you know, the company paid X, Y, Z for it. It was like, wow, interesting. Oh, That would be so awesome to have that. Yeah. And have you felt any like challenges since going out on your own? sure i think it's you know trying to figure out where to spend my time because you know when you're solopreneur, my main kind of business partners is CCI is my property management company. So they're, I talk to them every day practically as we're, you know, it's going through whatever management issues come up with the parks. But yeah, trying to figure out what, like where to focus on in terms of, is it looking at deals? Is it analyzing existing deals? Is it talking to investors? Is it writing a newsletter, doing a blog, upgrading my website, appearing on podcasts, whatever it might be. It's, you know, trying to figure out on a daily, weekly basis where the uh, kind of most effective, most valuable place I can spend my time is. And what have you found to be like the things that move the needle for you? You know, getting out there and talking to investors as much as possible. And that's kind of a combination of, you know, people that are reaching out to me directly, following up potentially from podcast or webinar interviews. That's I think where I've seen the most, kind of got the most traction is to actually, you know, reach out and have those conversations to talk about my business, kind of what opportunities I have and how they can join me as a passive investor. Great. So what's next for you? As I look out over the rest of this year, I think this is maybe a good time now that July 1st is coming up. You know, I was at the beginning of the year, I set my goals for 2020. And I think now is a good time to reset for July to say, okay, well, how about second half 2020? What are those goals going to look like? And for me, you know, I'm going to be out there looking for parks. You know, I'm not probably as confident as I was early in the year that I would definitely buy one or two parks during the year. I think it's going to take a little bit more time to be on the lookout to find the right park. So I think I'm going to definitely be on the lookout to try to find another park to acquire and then grow my business on the CCI investment side to help as many clients as I can acquire their own parks.
0: Do you have any thoughts or predictions on
1: how things are going to go for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think there's going to be a combination. Like you're going to have some sellers that are, you know, that aren't motivated now that probably by the end of the year, they're going to be like, okay, fine. You know, I'm willing to take a discount because I'm ready to get out. I think there's going to be other sellers that are going to just hold on tight. They don't need to sell, and they're just going to try to weather the storm and wait till the other side. So I think there will be some opportunity for some good deals out there. I don't think it's going to be a huge fire sale because a lot of people, especially in the mobile home park business, unless they're really in a hurry to sell, maybe they are underwater or have gotten to the point uh, where they just tired of running their business, most of them can hold on and weather their way through this.
0: So you're still looking to buy, but I guess you just be a little bit more conservative in your, in your acquisitions.
1: Yes. Yeah. Definitely want to make sure that in this environment, we don't overpay for anything and, you know, really try to be a little bit more patient to find those special right deals.
0: How has your buying criteria changed? Do
1: you have a different way to analyze numbers? You know, I think I still look at things the same way. You know, really starting on, you know, looking at the market—is there good diversity in employment? And then again, finding a park that that has some potential for upside. So I think that kind of the things that I'm looking for are the same. I think I'll probably spend a little bit more time looking at more parks to try to find one where I might be able to buy it at a little bit more attractive price, or find something where I feel like I might have a little bit more negotiating leverage. And do you have any tips for any
0: new investors who are? You know, trying to get into the business, but are kind of scared now because this is
1: a very uncertain time. Yeah, are you thinking like the mobile home park business or investing in general? Either or. I think uh, it's, now is not a time to be scared away. I think it's if, if somebody's new to the business, then if you're or like just starting your journey, I think education is always the biggest, most important piece to that. And that's a combination of podcasts and books and, and webinars and just getting yourself educated. And after that, if you're ready to make the move and actually make an acquisition, I would not hold off because you know we're in the middle of a crisis now. There's still good deals out there. People still need need a place to live. And, you know, again, you just want to make sure again, that you're not overpaying for something, but I wouldn't say that this is going to be a bad time to buy. I think anybody that buys any kind of multifamily product this year, five or 10 years from now, they'll be happy they did.
0: Yeah. Just learn as much as you can through podcasts and books, get something and you know, yeah,
1: like you said, in five years, hopefully we recover and everything will be good to go. Yeah, absolutely. You want to look back five years from now going, ah, I should have bought back in 2020, you know, because best time to buy real estate was either 20 years ago or today. So if you can find the right deal out or out there and it's the right time for you to make the investment, then I would definitely, you know, start moving forward and do it.
0: Awesome. Are there any last tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we end our show today?
1: I would just encourage everybody to, uh, you know, continue to educate yourself. You know, Sean's got a great podcast, continue to talk to him and listen to his guests and learn as much as you can, ask as many questions as you can and, you know, continue to help all of us pull money out of Wall Street and get it into Main Street. I appreciate the shout out. I reply
0: to everyone who emails me. So feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, Todd, how can people get in contact
1: with you? So they can get a hold of me. My company is called Blue Elm Investments. So they can go to that website, www.blueelminvestments, or via email, Todd, uh, with T-O-D-D, at blueelminvestments.com. Perfect. Well, Todd, thank you
0: so much for being on the show again. And uh, looking forward to seeing you again, hopefully at our meetups once we start hosting again. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really happy to be on your show again, Sean. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Todd. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.